You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Galatians 3 verse 5, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's ask the Lord to bless us. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing as we seek to study your word, to understand it, to seek to apply it. We pray, Father, that, Lord, you would, by way of your Holy Spirit, that he would open our hearts to receive these great truths that, that you have uh, superintended here for our, for our edification and for your glory. And Father, we pray that you would apply these words and these truths to our hearts in such a way, Father, that... As we go forth from this place, we would be uh, finding ourselves aligning our hearts by these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we began to plow through chapter 3. And as I said last week, it really is the, um, you know, the heart. We're getting into the real heart of uh, Paul's uh, arguments here. And, you know, we're really struck immediately in verse 1 there with a real biting tone, if you will, and we talked about that last week, uh, you know, all foolish Galatians, you know, it's a, some strong words there, and uh, we spent a little time talking about the tone, and, and of course, in the hallway afterwards, a, a number of you came and spoke about that, and I, I think maybe at some point, we're probably going to have to maybe take a, a, a Sunday aside and just go topical and talk about that, because it is an interesting subject, the appropriate tone. Uh, Paul is using a strong tone here, oh foolish Galatians, and there's another word here that's pretty strong too, which follows, he says, who has bewitched you? And just a matter of review, you remember last week I talked about the word bewitched, you know, has a window of meaning, it's a word that Paul's getting out of, uh, really out of this uh, uh, dark stuff, this dark um, uh, practice of the magic arts, the ancient magic arts, he's pulling a word from there, and on one side, on one extreme, the word would uh, signify uh, a spell that a so-called sorcerer might put on somebody. Um, so you have, you have that meaning on, uh, on one side. Clear to the other side, the word could be simply being used figuratively to describe deception. It could be described deceived. Someone say, well, then why doesn't the ESV translators describe it as deceived? Why do they use bewitched? I think what they're trying to do, and I think rightfully so, is they're trying to show that the actual meaning is in the center here. The meaning isn't that some sorcerer, if you will, has cast a spell on them. Paul's not endorsing any of that stuff. But they have fallen under the sway of the evil one. And that's something where, you know, really uh, this morning when I was thinking through this, I was thinking we need to, we need to stop and just, uh, just examine that one more time. We did this last week, but let's just think about that again. Spiritual warfare is indeed real, and spiritual warfare is indeed very powerful. If you make a practice of running around upsetting 
Satan's evil kingdom, uh, you will experience spiritual warfare. If we're not experiencing it, it's because we're probably no threat to Satan whatsoever. It's because we're probably not sharing the gospels, because we're probably uh, not getting involved in actively sharing our faith. But if we're in the business of doing that, uh, be rest assured, we're going to find ourselves um, being attacked. And the attacks come in the form of attacks on our minds, attacks on our hearts. Um, Satan attempts to twist our thinking. Uh, and what's going on here with the Galatians? You know, Paul's planted these churches. Off he's gone to plant more churches. These other teachers have come in, and what are they doing? They've actually begun to distort the gospel to such a point that actually now they're embracing a false gospel. And here you have this church that Paul planted. It's just teeter-tottering on the brink, which is calling Paul to write the letter. And this is very relevant. Um, you know, you know, my friend Robin, who just passed away here um, just a couple of weeks ago, you know, being born and raised in California, one of the things that she was really fascinated with about our area was all the old buildings. We drive up and down the road, and we don't think nothing about them, but she was absolutely fascinated by them, and I never thought about it. I've been to California a number of times. I mean, I've been to Los Angeles. I've driven around downtown in Los Angeles, you know, at these different shows. I've been to Anaheim, been Santa Monica, been through all this, and I never paid any attention, but Robin said, listen, they don't have, we, don't, we don't have all these old buildings out there, and, you know... And when her brothers came in for her funeral, what were they doing? Well, they, one of the things they wanted to do was ride around and see all the old buildings. And you know what a lot of these old buildings are? They're churches. And when you look at these old buildings, I mean, like, you know, Nestle's Chapel right down here on Route 2, or you go down to the courthouse, uh, the, Pres the old Presbyterian church that's down there next to the courthouse, it's stone. I mean, it's just big, magnificent. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to it. I think it was built in, what's the date on it? Like 1888, I think is what it says on it. It was built in 1880. I think that's so cool, by the way. But imagine the ministry that it would have taken to build something like that. I mean, a lot of expense went into building that. This was a mighty ministry at one time. Now, you can go through, especially on the east, you can go up and down the east coast, and you can find examples of these buildings all over the place, yet... Many of them are either closed or on a Sunday morning, there might be 15 or less people in them. And we have to ask ourselves, what happened? They were bewitched. Their eyes were turned from the gospel at some point. And suddenly we see that these words are so practical. I mean, let's not think this can't happen to us. It's happened to so many churches that have gone before us. Notice what Paul says right after the word bewitched. He says, who has bewitched you? What's he say next? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, what's Paul saying there? It was before your eyes. What he's saying is, listen, when I came and I preached, what did he focus on? What was Paul's focus? What was the central focus of his messages? It was Christ and him crucified. And Paul spoke of it in such a way that it was almost as if they were there on Calvary's Hill watching it happen. Only they were getting a running commentary. Had they been on Calvary's Hill watching it happen, they would have been confused and probably unable to make any sense of it. But with Paul's preaching, he brought them to Calvary, and he gave them an inspired commentary, if you will, on the event that was taking place so that they saw exactly what was going on and why it was happening. Now, having their hearts been won by the gospel... 
They're now following under the sway of the evil one. And Paul says in verse 2, he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And by reminder, what's going on? What are these agitators who have followed the Apostle Paul into Galatia? What have they been teaching? Well, they've been teaching that certainly you need to have faith in Christ in order to get right with God. They're not denying that. You know, we've seen that in verse 16. We see that, chapter 2, verse 16. Yes, they're saying you have to have faith in Christ, but they're putting that plus sign. You remember in a previous message, I talked about that plus sign. They're putting that plus sign in front of faith in Christ, and they're saying you also have to add circumcision. You have to add these dietary laws. You have to add all of these other things. And in doing that, they're distorting the gospel because what they're in essence saying is that Christ's death on the cross in and of itself is not sufficient to save us. We have to do something else in addition to that in order to be saved. Now, Paul is, Paul is fighting this. He is fighting this because he is attempting to preserve the truth of the gospel, right? And the truth of the gospel is how do we get right with God? We get right with God believing in what Jesus has done for us with no plus sign after that, correct? And Paul is arguing, as we saw last week, he's arguing from experience, you know, it, it, it's, it's a principle, and I've brought this up several times before, that when Paul is sharing the faith, when he's sharing the gospel, he begins with commonality, doesn't he? He begins with points of agreement. And I've shared, you know, I, I always try to make it a point when I'm sharing the gospel with people, especially one-on-one, is to start with places where we agree. You know, ask somebody, do you believe in Jesus? If they say, yeah, don't stop right there. Don't stop right there, because you have to find out what kind of Jesus is it they believe in. Even if they've been born and raised in the church and been in the church all their life, don't ask questions. Okay, so you believe in Jesus. So you believe Jesus is God in the flesh. Take it from me. When you ask that question, you're going to get a lot of blank stares after that. And you're going to get a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Or you might have someone say, you know, that part is a little bit confusing to me. Well, that's where you need to start. You've got some commonality. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah. You, okay, so what do you believe about Jesus? You believe Jesus walked the earth? You believe that? You believe that Jesus died on the cross? You believe that? You believe on the third day he was raised? Yeah. Okay, do you believe he was God? No, I don't know. Well, then, then now you know where you need to go. That's where you need to go. So you've found points of agreement, and you work from there. Now, what's Paul doing? If Paul were going into the synagogues, he would begin reasoning from the Scriptures. But he's teaching... Uh, Gentiles who haven't grown up with the Scriptures. So what's he begin with? He begins with the experience. He says, listen, tell me, when you received the Holy Spirit, how'd you do it? Did you do it by bouncing a ball on the end of your nose just perfectly three times in a row? Or did you do it by hearing with faith? Of course, the answer is we did it by hearing with faith. And he says, okay, now have you begun? You've begun right. Are you going to, now that you've begun by hearing with faith, are you going to be perfected by your, by your works? Now, uh, that brings us to verse 5. Notice what he says in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Another rhetorical question. Now, some of you have an NIV open. I think the chapter ends right, or the paragraph ends right there, right? And then verse 6 is in the next paragraph, and it says something like, consider this. Am I correct? Is my memory serving me correct? And I'm pointing this out to you because verse 6 is a transitional verse. You know, you can, you can ask yourself the question all day long. Is verse 6 properly belong with verse 5, or does it properly belong with verse 7? And the answer is, I think, both. It's a transition verse. 
It's transitioning. What is Paul transitioning into? He has now, he has argued from experience, and now he is arguing from the Scriptures. He's now bringing in the Scriptures, and he's going to do that through the rest of chapter 3. And what does he say? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, what's Paul doing there? He's quoting from Genesis 15, verse 6, which we read earlier. And I want to turn back to there. Um, but before we get back to there, I want to share just a couple of things about Abraham. You don't need to turn to uh, Joshua 24. Just listen. I'm just going to share a couple of verses from Joshua 24, which is very insightful about Abraham. And let me just say this. You know, if you, if you were to go up to people today in our culture and you would ask them, if Abraham has any relevance on their life, you'd probably get a lot of blank stares. Wouldn't you guess? I mean, most people are going to think, Abraham, okay, you're talking about Abraham of the Bible. Maybe they saw some cartoons of him, or maybe they saw a movie in which he's in, or, but what's Abraham, you know, what does Abraham have to do with us? Well, he actually has a lot to do with us. And in Joshua 24, Joshua gives us some information that is really helpful here for us. You know, in verse 1, Joshua gathers all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. He summons the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel. They present themselves before God. Verse 2, and Joshua said to all of the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Now, what does that mean? That means that Abraham, when he's living in Haran and he's with his family, what is Abraham doing? Is he serving Yahweh in those t- during that time? No. He's walking in darkness. Does that sound familiar? He's walking in darkness, serving other gods, walking in the pattern of the world, if you will. And he was doing that until the Lord called him. Uh, verse 3, then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. Now, with that in mind, turn with me to chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12. And here we get more information about the call of Abram. And I know some of you are very familiar with these passages. But in chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, notice the name's Abram, not Abraham. Abram means exalted father. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Okay, what's he doing? He's calling Abraham. He's calling him out of darkness. How's he doing it? He's speaking to Abraham's heart. He's speaking to Abraham's heart. And he's laying a promise before Abraham's heart. Notice the promise. We have it in verse 2. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, is Abraham a teenager at this point in his life? Some of you know better. How old is Abraham right now? He's 75 years old. And notice that Abraham doesn't say, hey, Lord, could you give me the address? I can, 
type it into my phone here and get the map quest going? And the answer is no. He doesn't get an address. He's told to go. To go where? Abram doesn't know at this point. And at 75 years old, married to Sarah, who's never been able to conceive, he's being told that he's going to be made into a great nation. What do you think his fallen human reason is saying to all of this? Kind of the same thing that fallen human reason says to the resurrection or the same thing that fallen human reason says to God becoming man in Christ via a virgin. You know, fallen human reason is always opposed to this, isn't it? But what does Abram do? What does he do? He's being called out of darkness. He's being called by a promise. God is making a promise to him. And what does Abraham do with this? Verse 4, Abraham went. What does he do? God calls him out of darkness, presents a promise to him. And what does Abram do? He acts on that promise. Does that sound familiar? Because what is God doing now? He's speaking to people who are in darkness. And he's putting a promise before us. And what is he saying? Put your faith and your trust in my son. And I will give you eternal life in a land that I will show you. Isn't that amazing? Now, with that in mind, take a look at chapter 15. Now, so some time goes by. A good amount of time goes by. We're told after these things, that's Genesis 15, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Notice what Abram, notice what Abram says in response. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And he continued to say, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Okay, Abraham hasn't had any children. How old is Abraham now? I don't know. He's probably mid-80s now. Still no. Imagine what fallen human reason is saying. How's God respond? Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. I uncovered something when I was writing a devotion for the park a few weeks ago, and I didn't know. And this is an interesting little caveat. From what I understand, when you're in the Holy Land and you're looking up at night at the stars, I've been told by folks who've been in the military that the vision of the stars over there is really a lot greater than it is around here. But I didn't know this. When you look up at the stars in the Holy Land, the, the, the unaided eye can typically see about 5,000 stars. Now, how do they know that? I guess they took a picture and counted them. I don't know. I'm guessing that's all you could do. But furthermore, I learned from that study that, that they estimate that there are tens of billion, or ten, there are 10 billion trillion stars in this uh, universe. Now, how they come up with that, I don't know. 
when I read stuff like that, I have a tendency to think, I don't think we can really know how many are out there. But what is God calling Abram to do? He still doesn't have a son. And he says, look up at the stars. And just as many stars as you see, there will be children. If you can number the stars, so you'll be able to number your children. Now, how does Abraham respond to that? Verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Someone said, well, that's what we just read in Galatians, isn't it? Yes, that's what Paul is quoting. And in quoting that, he's, meant, he's meaning for us to go back and, and, and take in all of this. Okay, Abraham is declared righteous. How is he declared righteous? He's declared righteous by believing the promises of God. And he's declared righteous before he is circumcised. He's not circumcised until until Genesis 17. And he's declared righteous before Genesis 22. And someone said, well, what's Genesis 22? It's that story where, um, okay, God delivers on his promise. Sarah becomes pregnant. She gives birth to Isaac. Isaac's now a teenager. And uh, God says to Abraham, take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him for me. You familiar with that story? What's Abraham do? He takes him up. And just moments before he's going to go through with it, the Lord stops him. Now, that is, we're told at the very beginning of that story that God is testing Abraham. But the point I want to make is Abraham has long since been justified, long before that story ever came. And furthermore, I mean, that's a story of magnificent faith, isn't it? But is Abraham's faith always so magnificent? The answer is no. Sometime this afternoon, we don't have time to go into all those verses, but sometime this afternoon, read the second half of Genesis 12 and see what Abraham does as he goes down to Egypt. His faith falters. He becomes scared. He says to his beautiful wife, listen, when we get down to Egypt, tell everybody you're my sister. How's that work out for her? Not very well. I mean, read it. And my point in this is not to slam Abraham. My point is is to say our faith is not always super strong, is it? It's not always super strong. But I just want to remind you, Abraham was declared righteous when he put his faith and trust in Christ. Was it a perfect faith and trust? No. We see Abraham, you know, Abraham and Sarah, their, their faith becomes weak as they're waiting on a son. You can read about that in the story as well. But one thing that we're told, one thing that we're told through this story is that Abraham's name is changed from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many. And and Abram, Abraham could also be translated as father of the faithful. Now, this is really relevant as we go back to Galatians. Let's turn back to Galatians now, and let's look at these verses. Paul says in verse 6, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then, verse 7, that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's those of faith. Now, notice how the, the phrase sons of Abraham comes up here without any kind of warning. You know, it's just like, boom, there's that phrase. And, and Bible commentaries they, on this book, they, they bring this up and they say, you know, this is probably something that the agitators were fussing over. It probably went something like this. 
Paul preaches the gospel. Folks come to saving faith. Churches are established. He moves on. The agitators come in behind him, and they say, listen, Paul's gospel is insufficient. It's good to get you started, but if you're going to be a believer, you're going to have to become a son or a daughter of Abraham. Okay, well, what do I got to do to do that? Well, fellas, you're going to have to practice circumcision. You're going to have to follow these dietary laws. And in that sense, you're going to have to become Jewish if you want to be a son of Abraham. Was there a lot of that going on in the first century? Yeah. If you don't mind, I mean, turn to Matthew chapter 3. Let's give you one example of it. What's going on in Matthew 3? Well, Jesus is about to enter the center stage. He's about to begin his ministry. Before he begins his ministry, John the Baptist comes out to play, right? John the Baptist is out preaching the gospel. He's preaching a, a message of repentance, if you will. And if you look at Matthew 3, verse 7, it'll be page 808 if you're using the church's Bible. When John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That doesn't sound very nice, does it? I thought you were always supposed to be nice. That doesn't sound very nice. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Notice what he says next. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Now, why would John say that? Because people were doing exactly that. They thought they were in because they could trace their biological ancestry back to Abraham. And what's John saying? No, that's not going to get it done. John chapter 8. If you turn there to John chapter 8, we find Jesus encountering the same thing. John chapter 8, while you're turning to page 894. Jesus in verse 31, says to the Jews who had believed in him, he said, if you abide my word, you're truly my disciples. If you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. Pretty well-known passage. They answer him in verse 33. This is John 8, verse 33. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Now, see, what are they counting on? They're counting on the fact that they're offspring of Abraham. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. Okay, Jesus acknowledges. Biologically speaking, they are, right? I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. What did Abraham do, by the way? He believed the promises of God. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from, the, from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the what? That had to have been, that was, we're thinking about tone. <laughs> this might be a passage when that day comes we might want to look at, right? 
um, as we're thinking about tone. Now, this is really going to be making sense, I think, as we go back to Galatians chapter 3 and we look at verse 7. What is Paul saying there? Know then it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So biological descent is not going to get it done. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of doing what Abraham did, right? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the gospel. So how do we become sons of Abraham? By believing. Now notice what verse 8, verse 8 is magnificent. I mean, verse 8 is just absolutely magnificent. Paul says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Preached what? Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Wait a second, Abraham's in the Old Testament. Yes. You see, what we're reading about in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. It gets even better for us who are Gentiles. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the who? The Gentiles. By what? By faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. I've said this many times before. Genesis 12, 3 is my favorite promise in the, in the covenant of grace. Because in that, in, in that verse, we're told that in Abraham, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That includes all of us sitting here in Chester this morning. In Abraham, we are blessed. Abraham is our spiritual father if we're in Christ Jesus. How do we become sons and daughters of Abraham? By doing what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? God presented a promise to him. He presented a promise to, to us the same. What do we do with that promise? Embrace that promise with trust. Trust that goes against our our fallen reason. It's not an unreasonable, you know, it's not an unreasonable trust. It's perfectly reasonable. But our fallen reason is in opposition to it. It's against it, isn't it? But against that, we say, you know what? God said it. I believe it. God said it. I believe it. That's what Abraham did. He doesn't have a child until he's 100 years old to Sarah. Ladies, Sarah was 90. 90. Does that sound reasonable to fallen reason? No. God didn't want it to be reasonable to fallen reason. He wanted to clearly display that it was miraculous. You see, suddenly it makes sense. What used to not make sense to fallen reason suddenly makes sense. But only after the blinders are open, only after the lights are turned on, only after God gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. But before that, no, before that, our, our fallen reason is saying no. It's shouting no. This doesn't make sense. This can't make sense. This kind of stuff doesn't happen. Why not? Why can't God do this? If he can speak creation into existence, why can't he do this? The answer is he can. The answer is he has. And he's calling us to believe the same. And as we believe, we become sons and daughters of Abraham, counted righteous just like he was just like he is. How can we be righteous? Because Jesus brings us the righteousness that we need, doesn't he? 
He brings us the righteousness that we need. He takes our unrighteousness, he takes our sin off of us, and he gives us the righteousness that we need. That's the promise. Come to me. Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you everything you need to be with me for eternal life. I'll go prepare a place for you so that you can be with me, and I can be with you. Verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before unto Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. How can it be that in Abraham all the nations are blessed? Because Abraham is the father of Jesus, speaking of his humanity. That's the point of the genealogy that we have in Matthew. You know, you turn to the New Testament, what do you got? A list of names you can't pronounce. What's the point of that list of names you can't pronounce? The point is that Jesus is the descendant of Abraham. And it's in Christ that all the families of the earth are blessed. Verse number 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the gospel that was preached beforehand and the scriptures to Abraham. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the truth, Lord, that as we put our faith and our trust in Christ, just like Abraham did, you present your promises before us, and we embrace those promises. And as we do so, we do what Abraham did. And as we do so, we're counted righteous, just like Abraham was. And our faith, it can be strong one minute. It can be so weak the next. It falters. But you're so pleased to receive faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please you. But with faith, you're so pleased that with faith, you unite us to Jesus where we get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places including the righteousness that we need to be able to walk with you. Oh, Father, we thank you for these things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.